This is a Carveline production. Controlling soluble salts is one of the largest challenges faced during the surface preparation portion of a coating project. Failure to remove soluble salts can drastically shorten a coating's life cycle. On this episode, Ken Rossi, president of Holdtight, joins us to discuss the differences between atmospheric and immersion services, the debate on allowable soluble salt limits, and how additives can help. All of this and more next on the red bucket hey paul how's it going man we're back in houston again and we have to talk about something important that happened today it was very important i know what i would talk about but what do you think was important today breakfast oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) we will be going back there tomorrow yeah so we went to this place that uh was a biscuit place but you ended up getting some kind of waffle chicken egg honey butter gravy awesomeness Uh uh-huh and i had basically the same thing but with a biscuit yeah I wanted yours, although my waffle was fantastic. <laughs> the whole time I'm thinking, going, oh, but that, but that biscuit, that looks really good that way, too. It was really good. So yeah. if you're in Houston, I'll give a shout out to the Flying Biscuit. You want to go there? <laughs> really good. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we have a, a longtime friend of the show uh, that, that's back on, and his name is Ken Rossi. He's the president of Hold Tight Solutions. Ken, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Looking forward to being here. So... Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the industry, how you came to Hold Tight? Yeah, my um, background with coatings goes back to the early 90s. And my dad actually had a manufacturer's rep agency here in the Houston area. And he invited my brother and I to join him as his territory grew. And at the time, he was selling Plasite and additional companies. And so... You know, I gave up my commercial real estate degree <laughs> and and decided that, you know, the, the family business was much more important. And um, so, yeah, I started in 91 and started calling on plants, selling coatings and sold coatings, well, until I came to Holtite. Uh, with Holtite, you know, I'd always known that surface prep was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, selling, being a good coding salesman that, um, surface preparation, I always had somebody <laughs> right? else, yeah. always had somebody else to blame <laughs> yeah. a failure on. <laughs> but, um, now I'm on the other side as far as that little equation goes. And, you know, surface prep just was, um, you know, I had the words, but I didn't really understand what it meant. And, um, so with whole tide, it's, it's, it's given me a whole, a, a much more balanced view of a coding system and what it takes to, to be successful and what you want in a good coding system. Yeah. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Hold Tight? Where did it come from? How did it come to be? Sure. And, and what do you guys do now? Yeah. Well, Hold Tight, um, we began basically about 35 years ago. And I say basically because it was born out of another uh, adventure that the founder had. He originally came to to Houston after he quit working for the Jimmy Carter administration. Okay. Okay. And um, he grew up here in Houston, wanted to create a, a company, a, a business uh, here. Um, and so he started a steel fabrication plant. 
And in the process, he realized that that's a, you know, not as, as lucrative as he had hoped it to be. So he started developing other products and other ways to broaden his revenue stream. And he actually was one of the early persons to bring to market water jetting, uh, a oh, piece okay. of equipment using water to clean a, a surface high pressure. And there's consequences to putting water on steel. There is. So <laughs> once he realized that those consequences were not acceptable to right, yeah. <laughs> all the people that might use his equipment, <laughs> right. he had to come up with a way to prevent that, that consequence, which is basically flash rusting. And so he had a, a chemist, and they developed probably half a dozen different versions mm-hmm. and landed on... 102. So it was 101 through 106 or 104 <laughs> or something like that. And 102 is the one that stuck. So, um, yeah, he just really shut down the, the steel fabrication business, shut down the equipment side of it because the market wasn't quite ready for that yet and began to really promote and evangelize the, the concept of removing salts and the, the need to do that to improve coating systems. So... Yeah, I give him a lot of all the credit for yeah. us being here. Yeah, that's a that's a great history of of really a ground roots, mm-hmm. you know, way up through the through the network that says no. Here's a here's a problem. I mean, that's not dissimilar to Carbline's background of exactly. Here's a problem, and we need to find a solution and how we're going to work through that. So that's a, those are those are the ones that usually stick around. Yeah, and and it was you know it was something that the market wasn't really there for that level of of that requirement as far as removing salts and cleaning the steel but quite honestly what really promoted it was when the equipment manufacturing caught up with them when what abrasive blasting equipment began to get its foothold in the market mm-hmm. and people especially in here in the the texas gulf coast and all the plants you have to suppress dust yeah. and so the best way to do that is with water or what used to be used to people and they still use them the water shield which would be over a, a typical blast nozzle but a shield of water that would would flow out and suppress the dust that way any way to get water on the surface to not only suppress but then as people discovered to clean better mm-hmm. you know clean steel makes for a better coating system so, yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because, you know, you brought up salt and it's something that I, I don't think everybody thinks about that, you know, there's salts in the air. There, there could be salts from chemical fallout. There could be salts or chlorides from being close to the ocean. But why are those detrimental to steel? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's real, you know, it, it's very basic as far as just going back to your high school chemistry in that, um, Salts, when they're left on a surface and a coating is is put over them, they are somewhat like little magnets, and they will attract water, and most coating systems are permeable, so water will travel through that coating system. And um, if there's water there, then it's going to immediately attract, and it will continue to attract, and which will lead then to what we call osmotic blistering. Mm-hmm. So typical failure of coating systems when it has to do with salts are osmotic blistering. And as we all know, you know, selling tank linings as I did in the early part of my career, 
some people would live with those blisters and other people would not, depending on what they were trying to get out of a particular lining system or the life that it had left on it. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's always just felt like they were, that was just a part of a coating system. <laughs> and that's what you just did. You just waited for those blisters to appear. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's what over the last 15 to 20 years, you know, our, our industry has determined that a cleaner piece of steel is going to be much better for a coating system than one that has these unseen, invisible salts on the surface. So it just becomes a, a cathode and, and, a, and an anode reaction with water, the salt, the steel, and you create that pathway. Yeah, and I think a really key thing that you, that you just mentioned, invisible contaminants. Mm -hmm. Because when we talk about standard surface prep, all of the NACE and SSPC standards, you know, you start with an SP1, which is the removal of visible contaminants. Mm -hmm. Those standards do not address salts. And the typical salts, uh, Jack had mentioned, sort, uh, chloride, sulfates, and nitrates. Those are the ones that we're normally at. But when they're in their dry form, you typically don't see them on right. the surface. Right. And so that's microscopic or transparent to some degree. And when you paint over them, the degree of a blister or whether or not you can allow it to stay is going to be frequently dependent on the amount of free moisture in the chemical that's right. in the lining. Right. You know, so if you have something that let's say it's crude oil and there's very little to no moisture in it, those blisters aren't as hazardous. Right. There's no moisture to be going through. But if you're working with a water tank, water is now all pretty prevalent right. and it does cause a bigger problem. And that's really, I think what has come down to, do we have to deal with it and how? Right. But what we've also come to find out now is we become more understanding of what salt can do to a coating system. They now, if you look at a piece of steel that's clean, especially to the naked eye, and you've achieved your, your cleanliness standard that's required, it all looks good, just naked eye, and at 10 to 15 times magnification. But when you up that magnification to about 500 times, you start seeing these little rocks on there. You see mm -hmm. these you know, little fractured, these little rust worms that you don't see with the naked eye, but they're there. And those are the little things that not only with the salt to create the blisters, but if you've got fractured blast media on there, and especially if it's allowed to gather in a particular area, then you're not getting full contact of that coating system to the steel. Right. And that should be the goal of any good coating system, whether it's atmospheric or immersion, that you have full contact. And that means not only the surface of it, but also down into the, the profile. That's, I mean, that's right, because we're creating that profile mm -hmm. to give us a bigger surface area for a coating to stick to. I mean, it's, it's always funny when somebody sends in a paint, say, you know, your paint fell off, and they send it in, and the back of it's covered with dirt. And you look at them, and you go, nope, my paint stuck perfectly it did exactly what it was supposed to do like what do you mean it's coming off on sheets and i said it stuck to every piece of dirt that you left on that tank right. your dirt fell off right. <laughs> the paint stuck great right. the dirt fell off right well before we talk about the dirt you know i, I think a thing that was important to talk about is we, we talked about invisible yeah right so ken how do we find these salts well, that's a great question. And there has been, you know, over the last 20, 25 years, you know, we've become much more sophisticated with 
being able to test surfaces and to be able to come up with a, a reading that tells you how many uh, micro siemens per square centimeter is on the surface. You know, so it's it's not difficult to determine. We can even fine tune it to the type of salts that are on the surface. Yep. You know, there's a lot of people feel like if, if it's a chloride, it's a chloride. So it doesn't really matter what it is. But there are a lot of specifications written around, as you mentioned, CSN. And um, so knowing what that is, is very important. And it's all driven by the specification. Mm-hmm. If a specification doesn't call for anything, you know, contractors are not going to bid it. No. And But if it does, and then if it calls for a specific type of test, then that all has to be followed. And so that, that would be, you know, conductivity is really what you're trying to find because not only is conductivity going to read the salts, but it's also going to read other, um, you know, conductive ions that are on that surface that could, you know, not always, but could impact the coating system. And a conductivity test is generic enough that it just gives you all of them. And it's whatever is causing there to be essentially a current through the liquid. Right. And so that way you're not, well, here's one that we didn't know was there. And right. it ends up, you know, giving us an errant reading. Exactly. But yeah. So pro tip, engineers out there, you're writing a specification. Include something about soluble salts. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And what we confuse, I think, also is cleanliness. In the industry, traditionally, cleanliness had to do with the amount of profile and how much of the surface was cleaned of existing rust. But cleanliness now, with the advent of understanding what salts can do to a coating system, cleanliness has a double meaning almost Mm -hmm. in that it's, it's your surface profile, it's your surface blast, but it's also physically the cleanliness of that steel. Is there anything left on there? that's going to impact adhesion. I remember back in the day, you know, every spec you just called for or every contractor would uh, sweep down an area with a a broom, (laughs) blow it down maybe with a, you know, outdoor residential (laughs) blower and, and, and they might have clean air, maybe or maybe not. And that was cleanliness. Mm -hmm. That's all you had to do. But as we become more sophisticated and as, and as, as owners have demanded a longer life from their coating systems that they're spending a lot of money for, then why not really understand what's on that surface? And, you know, I would argue one of the things that's also changed is, and it comes up a lot, the environmental impact of what we've done, where we used to use linings, especially that were 30 and 40% solids, Mm -hmm. which means you have a lot of liquid on the surface to displace things, which meant if you had a stray piece of blast media or something, the coating itself was much more forgiving. As we have improved the environmentalness and the coatings, this is one of the side effects. Mm -hmm. We now need cleaner substrates to put that paint on. Yeah, because really what has happened is that many coating systems that used to be a very thick film coating, especially in the immersion world, have gotten thinner. Yeah. And especially as you're going to, you know, low VOC or no VOC coating systems, they, it's just caused that, that to reduce that, thin, yep. that thickness of the film, which is great. But it makes it even more important that you're, used, that you're applying it to a clean surface. Yeah. So we've kind of tiptoed around it and we've talked a lot about how 
salts and cleanliness is so important with immersion service, but it is also for atmospheric exposures. You want to talk a little bit about some of the difficulties or nuances, what we see you know, comparing the two? Yeah, it's, um, you know, because atmospheric is really going to be much more susceptible in my mind to salts because you've got environmental impact on a surface. You've got, if you're along the, you know, say the Texas Gulf Coast, you've got just the marine activity, mm-hmm. you know, in the air that's going to create uh, salts or deposit salts on the surface. But then you've also, with all these plants, all the refineries, You've got salts that are chemically being created that then are left on the surface. And all that typically occurs on the outside of a tank, mm-hmm. outside of, st- of, of, of piping. Bridges and pipes. Bridges. Yep. And, and that's where, you know, many times that can be just as important, if not more important, than an immersion. You know, because with immersion, you know, it's, it, it still is very important, but you are typically your surface preparation procedures are, are a little bit more robust with the amount of blasting done. And many times can even be done with like a UHP or ultra high pressure uh, water jetting. And, you know, that's going to naturally remove a lot of salts, but it's still important no matter whether it's immersion or, or um, atmospheric that you know what's on the surface mm-hmm. and that's documented. And I think that's where, the engineering world, the owners have all demanded and are, are, are finding that it's they can cover themselves by running those tests and knowing what they are going over. And it's just, you know, like I said initially, it, as a coating salesman, it was always nice to be able to blame surface preparation. <laughs> but, you know, that argument or that that opportunity is is, is being reduced as, as everybody understands what can happen with the surface that's not really clean. Yeah. So one of the things that we see as, as we, you know, we talked about the available water influences the osmotic blister. And that's one of the benefits we have with atmospheric coatings is there's less water available than there is inside a tank. But the problem is there's more salts presented to it. And like you said, Ken, the, you know, tank painters typically are not also bridge painters. Those are very different skill sets. Usually. So in those cases, their, their surface prep, their ideas, you know, you look at how many times is a bridge overcoated. We don't ever overcoat the inside of a tank lining, you know, but you overcoat bridges all the time. So that understanding those, those processes are very different for something that's done out in the atmosphere, right? not to mention containment is much harder on a bridge than it is in a tank. Right. The tank is meant to hold everything inside <laughs> it. So everything settles on the bottom and you clean it up. But, you know, your bridge over a highway or over a body of water, that's a much different uh, monster to tame as to how to contain that. You know, it's interesting, though, if we had a, the ability to run an average of, of length of, of life of a coating system on a bridge versus a tank, exterior of a tank versus the interior of a tank, piping or whatever. If we had that data available to us, my guess is that we would now see a longer life coming out of those coating systems simply because we're talking about bridges. Cleaning steel and removing salt, as the DOTs uh, in various states have approved it, has become much more important Mm -hmm. to a coating system. And I would just have to guess that the life of coating systems is incrementally increasing as we, you know, as we improve 
And it's just not removal of salts. There's a lot of things that our industry, even though we're a very mature industry, we still have a lot of things, new technology, new ways of doing things Mm -hmm. that have come out that, that make us exciting and relevant. In the industry, there's great debate over the amount of allowable (laughs) soluble salts, because here's the thing. You can wash that tank 10 hundred million times. You're not getting everything off. You're you're a numbers guy, aren't you? Whatever. <laughs> you're also a pessimist. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. Because you're not going to get it all off. You're just not. So let's talk about not necessarily the debate, but the why is there a debate between the, um, uh, the amount that you're allowed to leave on the surface? Because one would think, you know, we have all these committees. We can just get together with a committee, hash it out, and put it down, right? But we can't. Ken and I have sat in some of those same meetings. (laughs) There's a lot of hashing, but none of it's out. Right. Right. So why? Well, you know, to be honest with you, we always push it back on y'all as a coding manufacturer. Sure, sure. And, you know, expecting, quite honestly, that you would want to have that surface prepared the best it can be and have it as clean as possible so that you would then have your standards but I think it's that becomes challenging too because you have your market forces that will determine. And we're going to blame it on Jack's group. And it's a marketing problem because they won't let us put make it as clean as possible because then they tell us it's not sellable. Right. And so I they want to make everything be something friendly to a customer. Right. right. So, you know, and, and, and I agree as a ideal world, we would love to have zero right. parts per million of right. any salt contamination at all. Right. But if you actually made that, but I got to sell paint, right? right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And, and we, but I got to sell, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it, so there is a fine balance there. And I think really who ought to be controlling this narrative is the owner. But what we all know when we get into owner meetings, project meetings, that the owner is going to sit back and just listen to the various parties involved. Mm -hmm. And they may direct it. And some very large companies have corrosion groups that will, you know, determine, you know, several come to mind for me that I called on. And so I could always depend on them to be very clear on what they expected in a particular job. But that's not the case for probably 50% 50% or more of the end owners. Yeah. Yep. So it's, then it becomes an economics issue. Yeah. And um, how much is that owner willing to pay for the degree of cleanliness that would occur? So it's a fine balance for all parties involved. And, you know, there is, there's, I think you're on the, the committee mm-hmm. that AMP is, 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 kind of started is now restarting again about identifying for particular environments, particular coding systems, what should be kind of a maximum allowable salt content. Um, interestingly enough, ISO has had a document like that for years. years. Yep. I mean, it goes back to, I think the early two thousands. And um, so it's just a hard issue and, well, and I was going to say, do you guys think the variability is, is really plays into it? Like so with environments, coatings, you know, different cross-link densities, things like that. So that's exactly where I was going to go was I remember one of the most heated meetings that we had a couple of years ago. I don't know, maybe five or six years ago now. 
And there was, there was a gentleman in there who was from the desert Midwest and said, why do I have to worry about salts? I have no moisture. I can blast my steel and set it out in my yard for weeks and I get no rusting at all. Why do I worry about salts? I can paint over that and never have a problem. And, and my question back was, does the painted steel that you paint never leave the desert? Because if it leaves the desert, any salt that you had left now is prone to those new environmental conditions. Yep. And his answer was, no, it's already got paint on it. We're like, no, that is exactly what the problem is. And because of it being such a global society Mm -hmm. and your customers are global, you don't know where your stuff is always going to end up. Even if you think you're selling it to somebody here, they may sell it to somebody else. And when you get into that complexity, there really needs to be a standard. And that's really what it keeps coming down to is, you know, and, and really we're talking about single digit part per million differences and totals. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not like we're talking about, well, I'm at a thousand and you're at 900. We're like, no, you're at eight and I'm at nine. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So, yeah. And it has to be five. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So it really is. It's low numbers. They're difficult to detect you. It's small numbers on big pieces of material. Right. And just trying to make sure that you get everything. The, the standard is needed. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, I've applauded ISO and cursed ISO for some of the things that mm-hmm. it's done, but the having that standard, it's a good goalpost. Right. And I, and I think really, probably if we're honest with ourselves, we'll, you know, everybody wants it, but nobody wants to say they want it. Yep. And, you know, obviously I do want it. I mean, <laughs> it, it makes my, my, you know, company sell more product, but all parties really are, are benefited by having a standard, uh, a maximum but it's it's just that getting there and this is it changing that mindset is it's throwing away those brooms it's putting away the air you know let's really clean that surface well let's use water you know yeah. god forbid that you would use water on bare steel but you you can and, and there's ways to do it that that makes it that that work very well so ken you know you're you're in the business of of helping rid soluble salts, protect the steel. Let's talk a little bit about how additives can be used uh, to not only uh, remove soluble salts, but to help hold the cleanliness of that blast profile. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ultimate goal of any kind of um, using an additive and, and to be honest with you, it doesn't have to be just with wet abrasive blasting. So I want to back up and, and make sure that's known because what we are seeing more and more is the people that are still doing traditional dry abrasive blasting where they can, that they can very easily follow up with like a pressure wash mm-hmm. and just pressure wash with the water. Typical, typical, you know, um, industrial pressure washer is two to 3000 to 4000 PSI mm-hmm. It's perfect. So that is, there is a way to do this no matter what type of surface prep or what type of equipment you're using. But in general terms, an additive will help that water clean the surface better. And what it really does is that it changes the chemical nature of that water. Mm -hmm. Water typically on its own will want to just bridge over a profile. Okay. Meaning it doesn't want to go into the the profile. It'll just go, it'll just skim over it. And by putting an additive into the the water, you reduce the surface tension of that water. 
So now all of a sudden water will go into the profile. It's enhanced by the pressure behind that water that forces it even more so to go in there and really flush out that profile. But really in your profile for most steel surface prep situations, that profile is where your contaminants are going to reside. They're going to be at the bottom of that profile. And the way you know that is if you see flash rust in the very early stages of flash rust, it'll begin to look like a banana that's kind of past its prime. Yeah. Where it's got those brown spots on it. Mm-hmm. And that's what a surface that is beginning to flash rust will look like. And that tells you that in that profile, in those depths of those profile, there's something in there that's drawing moisture and causing that, that, that color change. And so one thing I want to clarify, if anybody didn't catch it, um, when Ken, when you said the surface profile changed the surface tension of the water, you know, what we're talking about is if you drip water, does it beat up or does it spread out? Exactly. And when it beads up, that's because the surface tension of the water exactly. has more to hold itself together than it does to spread out. Exactly. And so the, either the chemical makeup of the water or the makeup of the substrate Either one of those can affect how tight that water droplet is. Right. We use it as a lot of, you know, a lot of occasions to test different things, you know, like we have some demonstrations with zinc and you can drop water on it and see how it beads exactly. up or spreads out. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's all yeah. the same thing. You can even do it probably your in your water-based coatings, yeah. you even have to deal with that, that concept too. I used to do it on walls when I was a sales rep for house paint. Right. Latex, you know? right. Yep. Right. Spray, squirt some water on the wall and show them how it beads up or soaks in and yep. So I'm sure... All along, the coating manufacturers have been totally accepting of this additive <laughs> and, and its use in, in all ways possible, right? Totally. <laughs> totally. For 35 years. For 35 years. <laughs> and, 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 you know, coating manufacturers have been late adopters yes. yep. of this technology because we will admit we at first were only good with this type of use for atmospheric systems. And in and, and that really we we because of all the things we talked about earlier the 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 less of a chance of water and osmotic blistering the um the better chance of the, the coating performing but paul I, we had did some testing recently yeah. that, that showed uh, some different results and we're actually kind of changing how we feel about them in general at Carbline. Do you want to give Ken the good news? Pretend like he doesn't already know. Yeah. I mean, to spoiler alert, as soon as this testing was done, we did send Ken, to, Ken a copy and, and we sent it to, to the other um, salt remover companies as well and said, Hey, we've done some evaluations because we had worked with, with all of the suppliers and said, send us in your stuff. Tell us how you think we should use it. How can we use it? How can we misuse it? Let's do some representative immersion testing. And we tested a handful of different linings and a handful of different cleaners at different concentrations and testings and temperatures. And, you know, we even tried a couple of them that we knew the coating would fail just to see, did this improve that? Mm -hmm. And so we looked at all those results and we came back and we said, we are totally neutral and we will allow this to be used. And that was really a big, as a coating company, we had... A, a barrier or a blockade for companies like yours to be able to sell stuff mm-hmm. into tank linings. And now we've just kind of removed that and said, Hey, go talk to your soluble salt remover people and let them 
advise you on right. what you should be doing, and we will permit it if you use it the way they say to use it. How do you like them apples, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> as long as we're at the top of the list. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, and, and again, I go back to having sold coatings, you know, surface prep, especially for interior, surface prep is king. I mean, mm -hmm. that is the utmost as far as the, you know, the biggest part of any kind of a job or making sure that a, a coating system works is how that surface is prepared. And so having anything on there potentially that's going to impede that adhesion or change the coating system going on there, mm -hmm. that is a very um, logical concern. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just taken time for, you know, manufacturers to grab a hold of that and to, but then to, you know, as, as you just stated, to ultimately test. And yeah. when you ultimately test, it typically will show, or it always shows. We just ran a, um, a five-year test with NASA where we had panels that actually were coated with carbline um, that were placed out on the on the Atlantic uh, beach side at the NASA um, facility there in Florida for five years. And each year those panels were checked. And the genesis or the reason for the testing was to understand is hole tight, is a additive going to impact a coating system over time? Mm -hmm. You've got to have the time in order to develop yeah. a time type test like that. And we just took the opportunity to do so. And what we found is adhesion was not at all made you know, less, but it actually was improved even after a five-year period. The other thing that we found that we really appreciated was in a scribe test was that adhesion was um, improved so much that it was uh, failure. You know, we were able to predict the scribe test that failure or the life of a coding system would be extended typically from 10 to 25 to 50%. And that's beneficial for all of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I always said as a coding salesman that I didn't mind failures because it gave me another opportunity, <laughs> but it also opened the door for other manufacturers. Yeah. And so if you can give your customer a good coding system, then it's actually to your benefit because you'll get the next one that comes up. Maybe not the one that you just did, but you'll get the next one. And, you know, one a couple of the things that you just mentioned there of, you know, from a coatings manufacturer side, we look at things and we say, well, we prevent steel by rusting by putting something on the surface and creating a barrier layer. Mm -hmm. And the idea was always, how are you not creating a barrier layer that now has has something there? And, and it was really just, it's not that we didn't have the people to study it. It was that we didn't study it. Right. And so like you said, it takes time to put in a test like that. And our testing, you know, we do immersion testing and it's right. it's a year long test process. Right. right. And so it's a matter of setting aside those resources and saying, what can I do to test that invisible stuff has been removed by invisible cleaners that leaves an <laughs> invisible non-residue? Right. And so th there's a lot of faith that had to go into it. And it really took time to develop that right. confidence to confidence, be able to say, right. yeah. Plus you're using water to administer it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is something we never want to do. Yeah. 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 That's the 30 to 40 minute song and dance on sol soluble salts. There, there can be a problem. But if you remove them, or as much of them as you possibly can, yep, you lessen your probability for a problem. Right. 
And as we learn more and more about soluble salts and as our knowledge base grows farther, we're, we're really getting longer life out of our coating systems. As you can tell by listening to this interview, Ken really knows what he's talking about. So if you want to get a hold of him or hold tight, uh, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can reach out to Paul at technicalservice at carveline.com. He knows how to get a hold of Ken and can get a hold of Ken for you. Or at holdtight.com is the website for Hold Tight, and you can find out more information there. So go ahead and don't hesitate to reach out to either one of them if you'd like to learn more. And so I think... What we want to do next is move on to our four question segment that Ken is <laughs> looking forward to. <laughs> I've been so excited to have this part. All right. So, Ken, what's your favorite movie or television show? I'm a crier. So, if a movie draws me to tears, then it's, in my book, a good movie. And the one I've always loved is um, Remember the Titans. Okay. Okay. That good is one. such a... Yeah, it has its Texas roots, so that's that's actually kind of fun. But it's um, it's a it's a great one. It is a really good one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's your hobby? What do you like to do in your free time? You know, that's a that's a good question. And um, as we were discussing about being empty nesters, um, that changes. You mm-hmm. know, it used to be the kids, and now it's my wife, and you know working out and doing all that kind of normal stuff. But what we really have grown to love is, is traveling. And, yeah, you know, yeah. this business allows me an opportunity to do a lot of traveling. And um, so I would say traveling and reading, you know, and, and when I can put the two together, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Those plane rides are great for that. Oh, reading on a beach is a great place. Oh, well, to that's read. even, yeah, that's even better <laughs> I, with a, something good to drink. That's right. <laughs> I dream dream of the day that I can sit on a beach and read a book as the father of a seven-year-old I dream so you you said you like to remember the Titans so that might give us a clue to this next one what's your uh, favorite sport or team to 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 watch oh yeah well it's it it would be you know and it's funny because you know all these websites you have to have these lists of questions what's your favorite sport what's your favorite you know you know subjects in, in in school my favorite sport is football. I just have didn't play football. That's not ever been, you know, what I was cut out for, but I just love it. Which then leads to my favorite team, which would be the University of Texas Longhorns. I did get one degree from there, so I can say that I am a... a <laughs> You're an alumni, huh? That's right. I am a, a legitimate as far as my love for him. But it's it's. I have many generations in my family of, of Longhorns. I, I feel your pain, though, because I am a Notre Dame football fan. I didn't get a degree there. I'm one of those, mm-hmm. but Notre Dame and Texas both were prominent at oh, one point and they both my, struggled. I have my list of teams. Yes, we have, unfortunately, but we're not, we're going to ignore that part. But um, <laughs> I have my list of teams that I did not like that would beat the University of Texas. And at the top of that list is Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm used to people hating my football team. If you were playing that sport, and had your walk-up song, your uh, you know WWE, mm-hmm. enter the ring. You're mm-hmm. you're up to bat. Mm-hmm. What is that song? What is your favorite song? What do you like to listen to if you're if you're just driving down the road, vegging out? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I'm not listening to you know podcasts about the University of Texas football team or uh, the Red Bucket or the Red Bucket. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yes, That's, Texas That's would be only one. after Carbline. That's yeah. exactly right. But um, this probably the song that comes to mind is uh, Willie Nelson's "Always on My Mind," and I think that's really appropriate as walk-up song. Only from the perspective that you want to always be on your competitor's mind. 
You 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 want to be resting in their brain. If you walked up with that song playing, yes, you would be living in there. <laughs> right. They might be laughing as you're in their brain, but <laughs> giving you a weird look. Yeah. I I think of myself as that other WWE contestant in the ring and this slow mellow <laughs> Willie Nelson song comes on and I think it would get in my head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it might be like I can dominate. Uh, no, I think it would be like I don't know what this guy is going to do. You've been hearing banjos. <laughs> and, uh... Exactly. <laughs> thank you, Ken, so much for coming on the show and joining us. My pleasure. Us. Thank you all for having me. Yeah, this has it's been, been a great, great visit. Great fun. All right, up next is our tech tips segment. You have questions, they have answers. This is Tech Tips. Hi, I'm Chris Burst, product line manager at Carbline. When soluble salts are a concern, it's good practice to check levels before and after cleaning. But the second check should be before blasting. This reduces the chances of the abrasive blast embedding salts in the profile. Thank you very much for joining us this week. We'll go ahead and see you guys in another month.